Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Dr. Jeff Sutherland. Based in Lincoln, Massachusetts, Jeff has written a number of influential books and has worked to improve the productivity and profitability of many of the world's biggest companies. He's perhaps best known as co-creator of the Scrum product and process development framework, the founder of Scrum at Scale, and a signatory of the Agile Manifesto. You can follow him on Twitter at Jeff Sutherland and check out his organizations at scruminc.com and scrumatscale.com which extends the core Scrum framework to deliver better results organization-wide. Jeff is the author of a book on LeanPub, First Principles in Scrum, Teams That Finish Early Accelerate Faster. In the book, Jeff explains Scrum starting from fundamental first principles, drawing fascinating parallels to areas as broad as physics, chemistry, medicine, biology, and martial arts, and the role they played in the exciting story of his search for hyperproductive Scrum. In this interview, we're going to talk about Jeff's very interesting background, career, uh, his professional interests and his book. And at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his work as an author. So thank you very much, Jeff, for taking some time to be on the Lean Pub Front Matter podcast. Well, it's great to be here. I want to support Lean Pub since I'm an author and use the platform so much. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people to talk about their, uh, what I sort of jokingly call their origin story. Yours is just so fascinating. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and um, your first experiences on your path to, well, well, let's just say, to put it in one frame, creating Scrum. Well, I grew up in Massachusetts in a small town. Uh, and when I was eight years old, I looked at an encyclopedia and I saw a photo of cadets marching on the parade field at West Point. And I turned to my parents and I said, I'm going to go to school there. I, I, I just knew I was going to go to school there. <laughs> they said, oh, you're you're crazy. That will never happen. But sure enough, in uh, 1960, I arrived at West as a plea. And uh, towards the end of my time there, what's relevant to Scrum is... I had the opportunity to go into the Air Force because uh, the the Air Force used to be the Army Air Corps. So they always had people moving from West Point into the Air Force. And I told them I would go into the Air Force if they made me a fighter pilot. And uh, they agreed to send me to flight training, said, you're going to have to prove yourself, uh, get a top class to get into fighters, which I did. And then I spent... Uh, over a decade flying uh, mostly F-4 Phantom uh, uh, fighters and F-101s and uh, flew 100 missions over North Vietnam and fortunately managed to survive. Over 50% of the people I flew with got shot down. That's where I really learned about agility uh, because your life depended on it. And the way we planned the missions and the way we were successful in coming back from those missions is all the operational aspects of Scrum really come from that experience. And particularly from John Boyd's Oodle, because uh, the uh, uh, Boyd was the best fighter pilot ever in history and developed uh, a way of thinking about it that not only applied to uh, combat uh, aircraft, but also applied to the design of aircraft and also applied to military strategy in general. And in fact, the U.S. Marines' strategy is totally John Boyd's OODA loop. Uh, 
So that's where Azure comes from for me from from that experience. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. There's there's so much just to, just to sort of break in there because there's just so much to talk about even even with that with that story. Um, so for example, I know from uh, some of the research I did for this interview that one of the um, tactics that you adopted and that you tried to train uh, peak pilots to do was to act because it was the most contested. North, North Vietnam was the most contested airspace in aerial combat at the time, I think, um, or up to that time, and that adopting a pattern as though you're being shot at, you're being targeted all the time. Yeah. was something that you came up with and that you practiced yourself, but that even if you trained, told people to do this, that people just wouldn't do it. Yeah. Uh, which is, which is, they would just, they would fly straight at the target yeah. instead of, instead of yeah, no. weaving around. People would rather die than change. A lot of them. And they did. That's a, that's a uh, hour, and that's hour, true hour, even hour today in business. Yeah, no, no, yeah, that's a that's a powerful way to put that put that truth. Um, another thing uh, to to unpack from there too is that I've met I've met a few West Point West Pointers in my in my day. One of them is the governor of Maryland right now, um, uh, and it's a it's a training academy not just for officers but for leaders. Um, yeah. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that was like. Well, the interesting thing about West Point is that it is dedicated to leadership, and it is probably the leading leadership training institute in the U.S. for sure, or maybe the world, and is trained virtually all the great military leaders. And when we first got there, yeah, the first meeting, I remember, I'm sitting, you know, beside my new classmates, and they said, "Look to your left and look to your right. You know, one and two of you is not going to be here at the end of this year." And then they proceeded to say, "We're going to. Uh, we have psychological experts here. We're going to take your mind apart and reassemble it to shift your value system from whatever it is your family." It taught you to be self-serving, right? Or to support them. We're going to move that into duty, honor, country. Your mission is to support the nation. And that's going to require a completely different psychological makeup. And they proceeded to do that. <laughs> They're very expert at it was one of the first uh, great transformations of my life was actually going through that process um, and coming out of there really a different person uh, for when I came in. Yeah, I've, I've, um, I've interviewed a, a couple of uh, Marines uh, in, in, the, in my time here. Um, and uh, one thing I've heard, I've heard about is the, the, the breaking you down and building you back up. Yeah. Um, and everyone going through the same initial training if i'm not mistaken yeah is a, is a hallmark of that of that training so that the officers and the non-officers have have a shared background well at west point everybody's being trained to be officers um uh but the unique thing about it is you know if you've been through that process even today you feel a level of trust for West Pointers 
that is remarkable. Not that they're not, not that they're all trustworthy, but you know, percentage-wise, you know, you can count on ninety-five percent of them to watch your back. And uh, because of the of the pressure of the system that you uh, that you went through together, you understand certain values are in common. Um, and that, and that the service of a, of a, that you're part of a group that's in service of a higher mission and not, not just, not just yourself. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that was the whole major point of the, in order to lead, you need to be serving a higher purpose, uh, than just, uh, you know, yourself and your family. And, and we need to give you that perspective. That's, that's the goal. And, uh, you went on from your military service to do a PhD uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. It was, I mean, fascinating. Yeah. Cellular biology. Well, like one of the things that would happen with academy grads is after you had um, five to seven years in, uh, there was a program where you could go back and teach at the academy. So they really wanted the, the structures of the academy to be people who had been out there in the field. And since I was in the Air Force, I applied with the Air Force Academy program. And I said, uh, I want to go back to Stanford and um, uh, get a degree in statistics, mathematics, and computing, basically. Um, they agreed to do that. And I I spent a remarkable couple of years at Stanford. And the, the, the courses that impressed me most were in the medical school. And the the head of the Department of Psychiatry at that time, who had the most popular class in all of Stanford, <laughs> later became the dean, uh, Professor Kajadorian, was actually a student of my father-in-law, uh, who had been head of at the Univ American University in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. And he told me his father, my father-in-law had actually brought modern medicine to the Middle East. And he had incredible respect for him. So as soon as he found out I was there, he uh, he contacted me and he said, I I have a bunch of research I'm doing. I'd like to make you, you're an expert in computing and statistics. I need that. Uh, why don't we work together? So we published, uh, I think, five medical papers together uh, while I was at Stanford and then at the Airports Academy, I continued that publication, and uh, I talked with him about, you know, should I be, you know, I was interested maybe in going back to school and be becoming an MD. He recommended against that. He said you should build on everything you've done. So don't go back and and do the MD degree. That's going to be kind of going sideways. Built on your statistics and computing background. So I applied for a PhD program at a medical school. Now this was really significant to Scrum because uh, my department chairman who actually hired me out of the Air Force Academy into medical school, wanted me to come there and run a, a large grant, a cancer research grant. And uh, it supported, uh, was one of the major cancer center grants. Uh, and this one was for the entire state of Colorado. So I ran that for over a decade. And 
uh, probably spent about $30 million. <laughs> a lot of it on my own research doing supercomputer modeling of the human cell to try to figure out what is what happens to a cell that turns it into a cancer cell and can we back up that cell back into a normal cell? As ought to be, yes, yeah, you can do that. <laughs> um, now, after doing that, I became a real student of complex adaptive systems. How do complex systems, particularly biological systems, evolve, grow, change? And it turns out that a team is a complex adaptive system. <laughs> so is a person, so is a company. <laughs> uh, so that cellular research is really the theoretical basis of what became Scrum. Because um, Scrum is based on complex adaptive systems. Uh, what happened later uh, uh, in the, in the uh, 80s was a whole bunch of research started uh, initially at Los Alamos laboratories. And I, I, when I got my PhD in the medical school, I became a professor of radiology. My minor was in radiation physics. So I'm trained as a medical physicist. Um, and I spent a bunch of time down in Los Alamos, published papers with some of these guys. Uh, but one of them, this guy, Christopher Langdon, uh, wrote a paper on simulating the evolution of life on a computer and proving that the more degrees of freedom you give that system as it's evolving, the faster it's evolved. And uh, I spent over a decade in the medical school and as a professor of radiology but then I was hired out of the medical school into a large banking company uh, running 150 banks all across North America to be their head of systems, right? Their, their lead architect uh, and systems because we were the experts at the medical school and certain technologies that the bank was uh, adopting, newly adopting technologies. And so they brought me in there and now I'm in industry and I'm looking at what they're doing and I'm saying, you know, all your projects are late. I went into the CEO's office. I said, hey, Ron, have you noticed all your projects are late? He said, yes. He says, we want 150 banks and at least five of them call me every morning. It's either the CEO or the CIO. And they scream at me. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, it's not getting better. It's actually getting worse. Every time you're late, you have new procedures, more meetings, <laughs> more policies, and it slows you down. And it was really while I was at the bank, I read Chris Belanger's paper on it's really the degrees of the freedom of a, of a system that allows it to move quickly. And what I saw that the bank was shutting down the degrees of freedom, making it more harder and harder to get things done until things became so slow. It was like the systems were built, were in concrete, right? Yeah, you <laughs> couldn't change them. 
<laughs> just just to just to jump in, it's so interesting. I know that part of that story is that they were using Gantt charts, which were from kind of like I believe pre World War One or something like that at this yeah. at, at this bank in the eighties. Um, but I want I want to sort of like just to sort of give give a little bit of framework for when we when we eventually get to talking about your book when you're talking about these these terms like degrees of freedom, for example, you know, are coming partly partly from physics. Um, and uh, you write about this in the book. And so like a lot of the things you've said already, for example, about your work in radiology, I mean, you were working with um, artificial intelligence back back, back then as well and training artificial intelligence as well. And so learning about that, but there's all there's also things about how, um, uh, you know, you're talking about like an individual and a team, but there's also a kind of, you can draw a parallel between that and like a kind of particle and a wave and things like that. So I just, yeah. wanted, I just wanted to jump in before you tell this really interesting story about, about what, what, what happens next in your, in your work. But, um, you know, there's, there's, there's all this, if, if you read the book, there's all this going on in the background of what I do, but what for listeners, for what, right. Right. For what right. Jeff's talking about. So anyway, sorry to jump in for, with that context, but, um, uh, but so then so well, you're at this bank or, or, okay. So going back to the medical school, uh, you know, when I first got there and I was spending most of my time in the radiology department, even as a, even before I got the PhD, and then I was a professor in radiology, uh, the department, the chairman, and I got along really well. Uh, I was, he said, there's this old computer in the basement that we use for uh, radiation therapy for tumors, cancer patients. Nobody's using it right now. You can use that for all your stuff. So I went down there and it was an old PDP-7 that started up with a paper tape. And uh, when you sit down in front of it, it has hundreds of lights on it. They're all dark. You take this paper tape, it's about a foot long with little punched holes and you feed it in, it goes and boom, all the lights starts dancing. It was like magic. It taught me, wow, simple, a few simple rules generate this incredible complex behavior, this kind of bootstrap phenomenon, which is actually fundamental to physics now. In my book, uh, one of the most remarkable things that's happened in physics in a decade or two is uh, Wolfram's physics project, um, where they try to simulate the universe on a computer. <laughs> And one of the things they found was things are unpredictable. In order to predict anything, like when your project's going to be done, <laughs> requires infinite computing power. <laughs> and therefore, humans don't know. And in fact, even God tell when the project's going to be done until the whole simulation runs to the end. <laughs> and... There's this let me just finish this because this goes direct to the Gantt thing you brought up. Many years later, I'm working with a venture capital group who I still work with, Open View Venture Partners out of Boston. I'm sitting there with an investment team, uh, six or eight really senior investment. They've been in the business for 30 years. I get to explain Scrum to them at a lunch meeting. It only took 15 minutes. These guys are really smart. At the end of 15 minutes, they said, we got it. And the thing we get is that Scrum is a much better predictor of when things are going to be done. Because you're not measuring hours, you're measuring actually 
feature points, stuff that we can actually deliver and sell. And, uh, and to that, that is even more important to us than productivity because we're in board meetings and we're looking at the Gantt chart and we have to figure out when are they going to need more money and how much are they going to need? And that depends on the date <laughs> and obviously the quality of the product. And they said, we never can make that calculation. I said, never. And one of them said, in 30 years, I've never seen a Gantt chart that was correct. So I turned to the rest of them. I said, have any of you ever in 30 years ever seen a correct Gantt chart? Everybody said, no. There are no correct Gantt charts. They are 100% wrong. And so anybody that try to drive things with a Gantt chart has this huge risk of failure. They're setting themselves failure. And uh, even today, there are still some people using those things. <laughs> we still have huge projects failing because of this. Uh, so, you know, all of this became very clear really in the, the theory of how complex systems work. Um, that you just can't do that. You're going to create a company that fails if you if you persist in that. Yeah, it's uh, it's. I mean, I'm just going back in my head to what you said earlier about how people would rather die than than change. Um, you know, and and when it comes to this this question that like a lot of I've I've probably talked to quite a few lean pub authors who've tried to implement Scrum in organizations as consultants, uh, without coming in with the kind of weight and 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 momentum that you that you would have had, and they have yeah. the problem of trying to get people to change and like move on from older models and things like that and it's just so incredibly hard and that's one of, one of the reasons that i really lo love how you bring up you know computational irreducibility right it's just this kind of bracing fact of existence yeah we, we just can't we can't predict right computational irreducibility is the first principle of wolfram's physics project and it basically says to predict the outcome requires infinite computing. <laughs> and since we don't have that, things are unpredictable, fundamentally unpredictable. That's where Agile comes from. And it is like the law of gravity. So we still have these, particularly in management and companies, we, we still have people that are arrogant enough to think that they can predict something that God can't predict. And that gets them and the company into big trouble. Uh, and it's getting worse and worse because the pace of change now is is getting so fast. And now with AI on the scene, it, it's, it's, it's accelerating beyond the comprehension of most people. So that, that reminds me of something, uh, what, a podcast I listened to when I was uh, researching for this interview. Um, uh, you said something that made me feel much more sane uh, than I sometimes feel. And you said, don't believe the financial analysts. You added you added media and politicians to that because they're always looking at what's already there um, rather than what's changing and, and what's, you know, the way, the way things are going. Yeah. They, one of the most interesting things in my book, I have this chart of the projections of when coal plants are no longer going to be used. And you can see every year, 
the the anal the experts project that there'll be as many coal plants in 50 years from now as there are today but every year the number of them is going down 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 but they're still projecting you know in 2050 we'll have as many as we have today even though you know they're vanishing you know 10 to 20 percent of them will go away every year and part of this is uh, is the incumbent bias okay the politicians the analysts and the experts they're incumbents they get paid <laughs> to tell you something that's not true that things are not going to be different tomorrow and so anybody that has a clear head and was a critical thinker will not believe them will costly do your own research and check. You know, some things they say might be useful to you, but unless you do your own research, you know, most of what they say is going to be wrong. Yeah, a really, a really clear example that I know you've talked about in the past is um, is Tesla, for example. So, and, you know, one, one of my jokes is that, like, the only, the only industry that's not as industry analysts that aren't as dumb as book publishing industry analysts are uh, car industry analysts. And so a lot of them see Tesla come along and they're like, oh, it's going to be like fuel cars, but with electric motors in it. And it's like, no, no, no. The motive, what's happening behind Tesla and SpaceX and things like that is thinking about not just the machine that makes the machine, but the machine that makes the machine that makes the machine. Right. And so, which is kind of what Scrum is, right, to some extent. Right. I would, I would venture to say. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah, but that's the, an interesting. Yeah. The, the idea that, like, when you go up to a certain level, the machine is going to be a process. Uh, but what, what people just, and this is, this is again, like, sort of when I was listening to your interviews, it made me just feel so much more sane is like, I've always been shouting at the car industry analysts, you don't understand. They're changing the way cars are made, they're not just changing the, the engine. Um, and this is going to speed up and improve the manufacturing process to a point where it's a change, Radical. just in degree, but in kind of what's actually happening. Absolutely. Tesla is the most agile company in the world. I have a $50 billion uh, investment fund, but half of it is in Tesla. So I, I've studied them very carefully now mm -hmm. for years. I bought one of their first, uh, their first roadsters. Oh. And uh, and today, I mean, I've been there and I've done strong training and some of the Tesla, um, but they have they are they use digital management and AI to guide autonomous teams that are changing every day, and they put more than twenty new hardware software changes in the cars rolling down the assembly line every week. <laughs> which is about a thousand times faster than historically Ford and General Motors change things. And it is such a force that it's not only disrupting the industry, most of the players are going to go bankrupt and it's just a matter of time. Um, I remember in 1990, I, told, I wrote a paper. I said, General Motors is going to be bankrupt in 20 years. They wouldn't let me publish it because they said that's not 
that's any American. General Motors, they're 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 the good old USA. <laughs> they're never going to go back. They took seventeen years. Yeah, you were very close in your prediction. Yeah, um, I was. I was. I was conservative. Yes, and uh, and the threat of Tesla is way beyond anything Toyota ever came up with. <laughs> they they could put Toyota out of business. Um, I, I mentioned uh, origin stories at the beginning of the interview, and um, there's kind of two that I, I uh, really was looking forward to talking to you about. Um, you mentioned personal transformation, and I know that um, you had an experience in the early 90s that's sort of not necessarily all that well known about the origins of Scrum, which is a sort of a moment of epiphany or enlightenment. Um, uh, and I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about that that story well one of the things that happened to me going back to vietnam flying on hunter missions over north vietnam uh one day they said uh hey we got uh we got a plane that's heading to sydney australia for r and r rest and recreation and there's empty seats <laughs> anybody that wants to grab you can grab it and go off for a week and so i i jumped on a plane with a buddy and uh we went down to sydney it was a great city and uh within the first day he met he met a girl and he was off he was gone for the rest of the week with her <laughs> so i'm wandering around bookstores and i walk into this bookstore and a book falls down on the head and i pick it up it's, it's on tibetan buddhism and that starts me on a long journey it's 1967 and by 1993, around the time that Scrum is starting up, I'm actually going to not only to Buddhist conferences, but I'm going to these initiations by senior Tibetan monks. And uh, most of the most of them are into. I remember what I went to, and uh, at the end of the ceremony, the English translator says, "You've just been initiated as a lay monk." And so here's what you have to do. Uh, one of the things is you need to meet the Dalai Lama. And uh, and I've done my best ever since then to fulfill that. But around that time, uh, the, the power of those initiations and my meditation was such that when I was coming into work for Scrum, or starting that team, things would happen and I would feel compelled. This energy in my gut would compel me to do something in a way that I would never normally do it. I was very much in the head all the time, uh, intellectual, but it was all feeling driven. And in about three months of that going on every day, the first scrum team as we know it formed. And it was always about the, was all about the people and their interactions and how they felt, and um, which is so, was something I didn't normally consider as a manager. I was always kind of intellectually, you know, uh, we got to incentivize these people. We have to discipline them if they don't collab cooperate. No, no, it's that was all out the window. It was like 
It's all about energy, the energy of the people, the energy of the feeling, the dynamics of the uh, collaboration. All of that uh, was what powered up Scrum. So that was, we probably wouldn't have Scrum without that, I would, I would say, for sure. And was that the, the, the time when you came up with the concepts of the, um, the, three, the three roles in Scrum? Uh, you and your collaborators. The-, hey, the way the three roles evolved is I came in there. They hired me. I was I was uh, president of another company, and uh, the CEO of Diesel. They had been looking for a new VP of engineering. Diesel was a very successful company, global company. Uh, um, and he said we've we've interviewed dozens of candidates and. And we even hired one of them, he said. But I have this new company I just bought with a new technology, and we need to re-engineer all our products in this new technology. And we need someone who has repeatedly demonstrated that they can deliver new products that are really you know, game-changing in industry. And you've done that at least three times. So will you come in and take, we'll give you a small team of our best people and we'll support you with whatever you need because this is the most important thing for the company right now. And uh, so I came in, I was kind of like a chief engineer at Toyota. You know, we're going to have a new thing. I had to figure it out. I had to rally the troops, get the whole company, uh, you know, engaged with it. And I got all the support I needed. So as we're building this new software product, which I was in an industry meeting last summer, and one of the people in the meeting said, hey, Jeff, I used that product back in the early days when it was first created, and I used it this week. It is one of the five best products that's ever been built. So not only did we get Scrum out of that team, we got one of the best products that's ever been created in the industry, even to this day. Uh, but let's go back, circle back to the original question. So um, I can go in any different ways. The original question was about the roles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as we started to formalize Scrum based on we got the name Scrum from Takeuchi Nanaka's paper, the new new product development game. Uh, our team was reading. I said, to do new product development, you have to research everything that's been ever written about the area you're working in. And I said, and that takes at least a thousand papers. And we're going to start studying them. We got up to about 300 and we came upon Takeuchi Nanaka's paper. And every time someone would get a really good one, we'd get everybody to read it the same day. And at the end of the day, we'd have a retrospective on the paper. And when we did this, the team said, we should call what we're doing Scrum. Because that paper describes how hardware companies build product really fast and really well. And one of our league clients is Ford Motor Company, and we can hand that to Ford Motor Company management, and they'll believe us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're not just a we're not just a bunch of software developers. 
<laughs> cooking up some new uh, tool. Yeah. You know, Takeuchi Nanaka, these guys are Harvard Business School and people are saying this is just the way, the new, the new way of working. And what we decided on the word scrum, someone on the team said, what should we call the teeter? And someone else said, the scrum master. Uh, because we've been learning a little about scrum. We've watched some rugby games. We we love these uh, Adidas videos on of the All Blacks team in New Zealand. And there was this great uh, tool where in training, a guy scrubbing would hit this machine. <laughs> the machine was called the scrum master. Gave you a really oh, good... I didn't know that. <laughs> so we've been a college leader, the scrum master. And uh, his name was John Samiatales. And so what I did was I took, the chief engineer has really three roles. It, part of it is the team leader of the people uh, building. So I, I, I gave John that piece. In the, in the third sprint, the team accelerated 500% one spread. They, they took a month's worth of work and they completed it in four days. And as soon as they did that, we had to ship the first release. I only had three months. We're doing monthly spreads. I had three months of backlog, but now they were five times as fast. I needed 15 sprints of backlog and I needed it right now. <laughs> so I immediately went to the senior VP of marketing. I said, we got a real problem. We need your best guy. He needs to be 100% devoted to this team, building black backlog. His name was Don Rodner. He became the first product owner. So I offloaded the product backlog to Don, and I held on to the management piece. The chief engineer's goal is not only to build the product, but to get the whole company to manufacture and deploy the product. So the chief engineer has to work across the entire organization to roll that product out. So I, I still held out of that function. Now, even before we got the product Scrum Master, uh, back when I was in medical school, the technologies I was using to do my research, which was really supercomputing level research, I was working with a Bell Labs team that had Kernighan and Ritchie on it. One of them invented the C language and the other in was one of the inventors of Unix. <laughs> and these guys had developed tools that were very useful in medical computing research, was, which was done in Fortran at the time. And uh, they had developed this package called RAT4, which you, you do, it was really interesting, a little Fortran program you ran it and it created a RAT4 compiler. And from that day forward, you only programmed in RAT4, RAT4 and you were in a modern computing environment. It was like, again, this little bootstrap of this little Fortran program pops you into a complete new dimension. Uh, and you know th that was very similar to the bootstrap back in radiology with that paper tape starting up the PDP-11. It really amazed me. And I'm bringing this up because Scrum itself is a bootstrap. If you 
apply it well, it boots the team into a different dimension of performance, of uh, feeling about the work, uh, the quality of the work, so forth. Um, so before we even got the product on Scrum Master, we started the team. I said, we're going to set up the team like we did it like they did at Bell Labs. At Bell Labs, they only had one job title, member of technical staff. So I said, you're all going to be member of technical staff. Uh, they said if they had a Nobel laureate on the team, they might make him senior member of technical staff. <laughs> so we only had members of technical staff, uh, team members, and then we created the Scrum Master, then the product owner. That's the, that's the evolution of the three roles. And that is critical to performance. And uh, I, I remember our, one of our most recent case studies in Rocket Mortgage, the biggest mortgage company in the United States. Their managers came to Scrum at Scale training and then became Scrum at Scale trainers and one of the first things they did was they took this huge safe implementation they had that had 15 different roles on teams. They cut it to three. Then they really focused on the product owner, the scrum master. They said, okay, the product owner is supposed to double the value <laughs> and the scrum master is supposed to cut the cost in half. <laughs> and that gives you a 400% increased performance, which they did. They took safe and they've made it go 400% faster mainly by driving only the three roles and then getting people in the roles that could actually deliver uh, so the roles are extremely extremely important that you get that right yeah and i know you have one uh, very uh sort of direct story that you have to tell about uh transforming um the way uh surgical rooms were kind of cleaned after after surgery at a hospital yeah. that combines these these ideas of like process improvement and doubling sort of process efficiency and the value at the same time but also you know getting more people through the healthcare system uh, helping right. to heal people better which is why there's all these sort of different dimensions of like you know it's it's easy to get sort of i think when you're thinking about productivity and products and you know saying terms like that and things like that right. companies you know making more money for their shareholders which is important uh these processes can just radically improve the quality of our lives and the way right, uh, the way we do things. And I was wondering, and the, the thing, the reason I bring that up, that specific example, is because you brought up feelings before, in that very powerful story about about you know your experience with with Buddhism and training and things like that. And I think a lot. I mean, I, I know a lot of people. When you bring up feelings, they're like, oh, swear word. We've got to think about feelings yeah. now because we're being all lovey dovey yeah. or something like that. And it is not what that is about at all. It is about fundamentally yeah. transforming processes for the better. Where I've gone with the feeling and the new book, really into neuroscience. And there are seven well-researched areas of neuroscience that are critical to a high-performing scrum team. And, uh, and, and, you know, in terms of feeling, one of them is actually the dopamine high that runners get, you know, marathon runners, they go out and run, they get, they get high. They're releasing dopamine to the brain. And agile practices 
We work in increments. We look for quick wins. That generates that feeling of like winning a football game, right? Because that releases dopamine high. And so it's not about feelings. It's about performance that's created by neurochemistry that makes you feel really great. <laughs> and, and a good scrum master has got to get that team feeling really great to get a really high level performance. You know, there's there's no way around it. Yeah, and this this specific example that I know about the, about the hospital, for example, was there was um uh the you you were brought in and the the you were realizing that like one of the biggest impediments to the sort of like efficiency of the surgical process was that the rooms weren't being cleaned quickly enough, or they could have yeah. been cleaned more quickly. And then so you formed a team, and it turned out the sort of head surgeon who I believe you made the scrum master was uh did not behave well towards the cleaners. And when you right. informed them, hey, you need them to be feeling good about what they're doing. You need to empower them to make decisions and use what they know because they're the ones there doing it. Uh, yeah, they're, the, they're the ones that actually know how to fix your problem. You don't know how to fix your problem. Yeah, but, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you, if you, let, so, if you yeah. let them feel good about what they're doing, compliment them for doing a good job, yeah. give them the tools to do it better, they'll do it better. Right. Yeah, it only took two. They had had uh, surgery is generates about half of the revenue for a big hospital, and this big hospital in Boston is a seven billion dollar hospital. So they're generating like close to four billion dollars in surgical fees a year, and so the speed at which the patients flow through has a huge problem, and their biggest slow down that took them an hour to turn around a room. And they've been trying to, they've been working on that for 20 years, trying to get it shorter, though no success. And they had a, uh, they had a lead expert that the hospital had hired. He came to our scrum training. He said, Jeff, come in and help me tackle that problem because that has a bigger financial impact on the hospital than anything. <laughs> and in two weeks, we collapse it from one hour to 30 minutes. And that showed that that it increased the ability, the number of surgeries that it could be done by 20%. And if you run the numbers, that's $700 million of free money a year from two to one week spreads of scrum. It's just, it's that's just, how effective it is at a, in that kind of environment. <laughs> It's just incredible, and so I, the, I mentioned there were two origin stories I had to talk. I had to ask you about one was one was Scrum, and and just sort of how powerful and transformative that's been. Um, and well, the other the other uh, thing is um, the Agile Manifesto, uh, which I think there's maybe some listeners might be sort of have been waiting all this time for to to hear you maybe talk a little bit about that that experience and what that was like. Well, I, I'm, I've been doing a great presentation about this lately to both traders and uh, to general public. Uh, the first day of the meeting, uh, it was it was called by a um, guy named Barb Martin, this software expert, and he invited only industry experts, just by invitation only. And he tried to get the, the leading thought, the thought leaders, 
across the planet who were the leaders in software development. And he got a lot of them there. There were a couple of people that couldn't make it and regretted it later. But the first day we had these really powerful people talking about what they were doing and arguing and very opinionated. And the only thing we could agree on the first day is that we needed to call what we're doing by a common name in order to be competitive in the industry. And we agreed on the word agile. And it was because uh, there's a book behind me. It's a gold cover. It's a book about a hundred hardware companies that created an agile consortium and Mike Beadle, one of the scrum guys at that book, and he said, I think we should call ourselves Agile. What most people don't realize is all of this comes from hardware. <laughs> Tachi Janaka's paper was all about hardware companies. The Agile book I just talked about, it's all about hardware companies. We just were software guys that took what they'd already figured out in hardware and started applying it to software, right? So it works absolutely as well in hardware. That's where it came from, as it does in software. Um, and it works in healthcare, it works in government, it works everywhere. So the first day we agreed the word agile. Then we come in and the second day, we're still arguing, debating, everybody has these opinions. And we have a coffee break at 10 o'clock in the morning. And Martin Fowler, who was one of the guys on the first extreme programming team, uh, go, a well-known author, goes to the whiteboard. He said, hey, anybody wants to stick around, I'd like to talk about, is there anything we can agree on? Because this group doesn't look like they're ever going to agree on anything except the word agile. And we're going to sp spend three days here and wind up with nothing except the word so eight of us stay in the room. And he says, what do you think makes great teams? Somebody said, well, it's all about the people and how they work together, right? Oh, Martin writes on the board, individuals and interactions. And, and people said, yeah, that's, they're a lot more important than any process or tool. And Martin says, well, we don't want to we don't want to put down process tools. Some of you are actually tool vendors, but we do want to emphasize we value individuals' interactions over process and tools. What else? Well, within 10 minutes, we had the four values of the agile. So the coffee break was over. Everybody else comes back. I remember it got it was one of those pregnant moments. Everything got really silent as the other nine guys were looking at the whiteboard. And then uh, one of the guys says, the guy, the, the founder of the wiki and many software tools, uh, says, that's awesome. And everybody said, yes, and we did it with no edits. People have asked, could we have ever come up with that with 19 guys in the room all debating? And I think the general opinion is no, it, it took a smaller group to kind of pull it together. That's how we got the Agile Manifesto in a coffee break. And then we spent the ne next day and a half 
writing the 12 principles that support the values. And for us, it was kind of like, we wrote this on a note. It was like a bottle through the ocean. Everybody read it <laughs> and it changed everything. Pretty amazing. It, uh, it, thank you very much for sharing that story. And it, it really did change everything. I mean, for people who listen, who are listening to this or maybe who aren't familiar with concepts like Scrum or concepts like Agile, you know, the reason that Jeff and I can have this conversation over Zoom, which now has an AI companion that I'm looking at and, you know, all kinds of other things is because, is because of this transformation in the way that software was created. Um, you know, it, it was before that there was, I mean, I don't know if we actually used the word waterfall yet. We've talked about Gantt charts and, and things like that, but you know, the sort of high level story that I always like to tell when I have a guest who's, who's sort of like an agile, agile kind of, you know, consultant or something like that is like, imagine before you could actually start writing code, you know, on a, on a product, a software product, you had someone writing a 30 page Microsoft word document and then, and then someone sort of, you know, divvying it up into sort of like a individual task and they just dump that task on you as a programmer like you're a bricklayer and they're like make this brick put this brick down put this brick down put yeah. this brick down and then two years later you you come out with a well maybe let's let's say six months later the feature is actually kind of deployed instead yeah. we've got these incredible things i mean i I've, like i remember talking to um dave farley about about working on a kind of uh uh stock exchange kind of system where they're like they're deploying features like multiple times a day on yeah. a software product that's doing like millions of transactions a minute, you know, and if it the best companies like, are, are deploying multiple features every day mm -hmm. to production. And I'm always astonished. You talk to people, oh, we got this bank, you know, we can't do a release more than once a quarter. I'm like, I mean, I, I was trading in Germany and I had seven guys from the strategy team from Deutsche Bank in the class. They said, what are you guys doing here? They said, this month, Amazon started doing consumer loans on the internet. And you know, they have all the information and they can give, they can make, they can deliver a load in like three minutes and it takes us three weeks. And within a week, we lost almost 100% of our consumer loan business. That's why we're here. So there are so many companies out there that are still sitting like Deutsche Bank thinking that somebody like Amazon's not going to come by and just take all their business in a week. I mean, it's, it's really hard to wake people up. And now with AI coming online, <laughs> I mean, the prediction right now from some of the leading thinkers is artificial general intelligence by 2025. That means a machine is as good as a human. When we get there, some of the CEOs of, of AI companies are saying there will be no software developers left. That, uh, that reminds me of um, an interview I did uh, a few years ago with the um, with the great Jerry Weinberg, and he talked about um, he was he was of a vintage where I believe the first computer he ever worked with was himself. That was his job. He was a computer 
Uh, and he had this great story about being there at like the early days of IBM getting into computing. And he was in a room, and I'm, I hope I hope I get this right, but it's the, the, the spirit of it is correct. He was in a room with a bunch of IBM executives who they thought programming was something you'd do once. And when they learned, no, no, you're going to have to have programmers constantly yeah. <laughs> programming. They were just like hangdog, you know, they could, oh, they were so disappointed. They And it's, <laughs> it's just so fascinating to think that we've come, we might be coming around to a point where like their wish finally comes true. Yeah, I am. Um, and it's as, as sort of interesting and scary as that is at the same time in so many ways. But, you know, these, well, it's kind of this idea, yeah. like, sorry, just, I just, I'm not, well, there's something I, w I really wanted to talk to you about. Like you talk, I know you've talked about like the, the existential kind of moments that companies can have. COVID and the pandemic was one of those where people yeah. who weren't agile or, or, or what have you, like, and who couldn't, couldn't handle remote work. Just because yeah, of the right. processes, you said like lots of companies went under and like, you know, just, just, you know, yesterday reading a headline about how like the New York times is forcing is there's going to be a strike in its programmers because they're forcing them back to the office out of some nonsense. Anyway, <laughs> can you talk a little bit, of, can yeah. you talk a little bit about, about, about remote work and, and COVID and the sort of experience you had to yeah, well, people about that? One of the really interesting things about Scrum and uh, in some ways, surprising to me is that uh, number one, it works in every country. We have Scrum in every country in the world, and number two, it works as well remote as it does in person if you do it well. We've run run multiple papers showing high productive globally distributed teams running as fast as the best teams uh, that are local, and. So imagine the COVID, when the COVID thing happened, as soon as it happened, I actually got a note from a product owner at one of the big drug companies. He said, Jeff, thank God we uh, started Scrum last fall because, you know, as soon as COVID hit, we had to shut the office down. Everything was in our Scrum tooling. We, we just kept going. I mean, <laughs> but our competitors who were traditional project management, they are they are dead for at least six months. And it's going to take them a year or two to bail themselves out. And we're just nonstop because of the Scrum Agile projects process. Um in the interests of time and, and respecting your time as well, um, just before we go on to talk a little bit about your work writing as a writer, um, I have to bring up uh, martial arts, uh, which is something that you that you talk about and you write about in your book. I have a little bit of a, a background in that in that myself, and um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about you know your your experience of martial arts and how that relates to to Scrum. Well, it was actually I was working actually while I was still in the Air Force, I was working in the peace movement, <laughs> and. Uh, I was a leader in uh, the anti-nuclear movement at the time, uh, surprisingly, while I'm still an officer in the Air Force. Um, and so I wanted to know how to develop a nonviolent strategy in an environment of violence. And, you know, I looked at all the martial arts, and one of the things that really intrigued me was Aikido, because it's a totally nonviolent martial art. 
And uh, Matsuyu Ishiba, who founded Aikido, was an amazing guy. His personal power could throw multiple people across the room without even touching them. There's a lot of movie videos of that on the internet. So I looked around Denver and I found that there was this guy, Gaku Hama, who had been uh, the gardener for Yuishiba and spent many years training in his dojo. And I think he's billed as the last, Yuishiba's last disciple. And he was training in Denver. So I, I went, I started going to the dojo and what I was really interested in was the mindset. I mean, I, I did all of them, but the thinking, um, always leading with an open hand. When, when, when someone tries to harm you, actually using their energy to neutralize them. And, uh, and be, being so effective at it that, you know, no one can harm you. You're not harming anybody, but no one can harm you, right? So I spent a couple of years in the dojo in, in, uh, in Denver. But then around the time Scrum started, for some reason, I felt motivated to go get back into the Aikido dojo and in Cambridge, they had one of the most senior disciples of Master Yuishiba, a guy named Kanai, an eighth degree black belt. And I went into that dojo, I'll never remember the first day, I'm sitting there in my key, my white outfit, and he had half of the people in the room were black belt Aikido masters right those are the kind of people that he had there and he does a demo where he has three of these black belts attack them at once from multiple directions and he does some whirling thing <laughs> with his body and his fingers and these guys go whoa six feet in the air flying across the room without him even touching them and it feels like a room that a huge truck just went whoa, through the room. And I'm rocked. And I'm like, whoa, what was that? <laughs> the black belt next to me says, that's the power of G. And so I, I spent about a year and and I was, he always would work with the new guys. <laughs> of course, I, I was still, I was always a new guy. Um, and I remember when he would throw me, his energy was so powerful. He would throw me, but then his energy would be support me like a baby and just lay me gently on the mat. Unbelievable. So the, I've always found that martial artists are very good at scrum and uh, one of the guys we worked with in recent years was a world-class uh, uh, Tai Chi master. And he's been very effective at, uh, at agile transformations. I asked him how he does it. He says it's all about the energy. If they get out of line, I whack them. He doesn't, he doesn't hit them physically. 
he whacks them with his energy <laughs> and they straight up. <laughs> so again, it's all about energy. It's all about power. I mean, I think before we end, I should talk to you about the thing that is what most interesting to me right now yeah. is I have a healthcare startup and I've been asked to create a framework for, uh, for health. That's like the Scrum framework, some something that's so simple in two days you could pick it up. And the, our theme song is, we're going to give you twice the energy with half your current stress. Because what we found is that the company that trains Olympic athletes <laughs> has analytics uh, that I don't know if you can see this on the oh a little bit yeah this uh, they the Garmin bought their analytics has it on the watch and the blue line at the top is energy you can see my energy is running even late in the day it's it's still running almost seventy percent and I've run a five k already today so I, if if I hadn't run that five k I'd be about fifteen points higher and the blue is most of most of it is blue. That's the stress level. Mm. So the blue is a rest state. It's what it's like when you're sleeping. Mm. So I'm talking to you now, and I've had a few spikes earlier, but right now, in the blue, my stress is like five percent. My energy is almost eighty percent. And what I do in my book is I talk about. Physics, how does physics relate to an agile transformation? You know, one of the best analogies is Newtonian mechanics. In order to move an object, you have to apply force. And the force is proportional to the mass, right? F equals MA. So particularly the organization is large, you need a lot of force to accelerate that organization. And force applied over a distance is work. And so to do twice the work in half the time, work divided by time is power. Okay, To do twice the work in half the time, you need four times the power <laughs> to make it happen. And obviously, and it, that power is gonna come from the agile leaders trying to move that organization and it's all about energy and so if you're going to have a successful agile transformation you need four times the personal power and you probably need many people running at that level to budge that organization right and the beauty of this today is that we can put with the analysts they have right now uh you can monitor yourself 24 by 7, dozens of healthcare parameters. You can do a deep analysis like uh, these first beta analytics. Know everything about yourself. Uh, and you can work. You get the biofeedback to take your energy state to a level. And I'm starting to talk about scrum teams. I mean, hey, the retrospective today, I just want to see you watch. If we're at the end of the day on Friday and you're less than 50% battery, 
and your stress is running at 60%, then you are really ineffective, and that is a huge impediment. Those are the impediments we need to fix. And if we get to the end of the day on Friday and your energy is over 50% and your stress is still down less than 20%, you're still running at about three times the power of the average person. This has been a great sprint, right? So I want to I want to take this whole discussion of <laughs> agile scrum and actually get real time metrics, apply some real science to it. That's what I, that's I have a healthcare startup that's working on that right now. That's really fascinating. What's the name of the startup? Just for our, our listeners, it's called the Frequency Research Foundation. Okay. Great, great. We'll definitely, we'll definitely put a link link to uh, some resource in that in the video description. And in the interest of energy and sprints and getting to the end of the week and things like that, um, uh, it's only <laughs> a Tuesday here, but we've been talking for over an hour, I think. Um, and so, uh, just as a way as a way into the sort of like you know, um, uh, just briefly the kind of like uh, addressing the sort of thing that some people do skip to to talk about like what's the person's experience like as a writer. The last question that I ask on the podcast if the guest has has a book on LeanPub is if there was one feature we could build for you. And I'm very interested to hear what you might have to say about that. Or if there was one thing when you're when you're using LeanPub that has you shaking your fist at it going, damn you, LeanPub, why does this suck so much? If there was one thing you could ask us to do, can you think of anything you would ask us to do? Well, I think you're already working in the area of AI. I would not be able to write this book without Chad GPT. And I also use Bard and some other AIs as well. Because in order to dig deep into physics, biology, evolution, complex adaptive systems, there's so much research over such a long period of time that you have to pull up to make reasonable comments. I couldn't do it without AI as a partner. So one of the things, right, I'm doing right now is we we just spent a long period of time moving everything from Word documents into the markup. I mean, AI should set that all up for us. We shouldn't have to figure that out. It should, we should just, you know, you already have like three ways of doing it. And we've gone through all three ways. We're finally in the Dropbox with the markup. Right. Why can't I just put a push a button and say, Give me a Dropbox markup environment, and right. Give me an editor <laughs> where I write prompts. ChatGPT builds it in, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's all right there in the markup language. Right. Right now, I'm still going ChatGPT into Word, you know, massaging it. Then moving it back into markup, you know, I have four or five steps I have to go through, mm-hmm. and I think you could reduce that to zero steps. No steps are the best steps. <laughs> yeah, I know that's that's really fascinating. <laughs> Thanks very much for sharing that. That's really fascinating. Yeah, the um, I mean, we 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 are we are working on some AI services for authors and things like that. Um, but the idea of like just get me set up. I've got this starting point that I've done set me up in my environment uh, would be would, would be really useful for so many people. I mean, I can't, it sort of makes me sad to think yeah. how many authors we've lost over the years because it's like, if only they'd had that button to click. Um, right. And, and, and we, we did have in our browser editor, we did have a, a thing where you could, you could prompt 
GPT, uh, but it, it wasn't sort of taken up by a lot of authors. Uh, so we, we kind of discontinued it, but like, I'll definitely like talk to Peter about maybe bringing that back. Uh, yeah. I, I set up thing would be the high value thing that would not require that much work. Yeah. Um, yeah. to just set it all up by AI and give them set up if they want Dropbox, you give them, yeah. you set their Dropbox box up for them, you give them all the files mm -hmm. uh, and off they go. Well, Jeff, thank you very much for sharing uh, your knowledge with us today and your really amazing, I mean, stories. I wasn't going to say story, but there's so many different parts to it. Uh, that, But but the, the great thing about your book um, uh, is that First Principles in Scrum, Teams That Finish Early, Accelerate Faster, is that you bring it you bring it all together. And it, it really is kind of like you talk about energy at the end. I'm so glad you did that because you talk about it. It's an exciting, in an exciting way. Uh, and it really does. The book gives you energy when you're thinking about like getting faster in your team, whatever it is you're doing. If you're trying to like do surgery faster, if you're trying to build software faster, it's it's all there. So thank you very much, Jeff, for taking some time out of your day to be on the podcast. And thank you for using LeanPub as a platform for your book. Well, thank you for LeanPub. I really enjoy working in that environment and I wish you continued success. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.